This episode of the Disney Film Project podcast is brought to you by touringplans.com. It is the one-stop shop on the internet for figuring out how you are going to plan your Disney vacation, Disneyland or Disney World, it doesn't matter. Seven Dwarfs Mine Train, you want to figure out how to get there and not wait in line? This is how you do it, touringplans.com. At Disneyland, you're trying to figure out how to get out there and how to navigate all the cool new stuff like Cars Land and Buena Vista Street and all that great stuff without having to wait in line, touringplans.com. You can optimize your touring plans, check the crowd calendar, do all kinds of great stuff. Make sure you check that out over at touringplans.com. They're the sponsor of this week's episode of the Disney Film Project Podcast. again everybody to the disney film project podcast this is the show where we talk about the films of the walt disney company marvel pixar lucasfilm touchstone hollywood pictures everything and anything coming from walt disney productions and the walt disney company we talk about it here on this program and over at disneyfilmproject.com I'm Ryan Kilpatrick, host of the program, and along with the folks you are about to meet, we run DisneyFilmProject.com, where you can find all kinds of amazing content, such as the show notes for this very show. You can find Blu-ray and DVD reviews, and you can find reviews going all the way back to the Disney shorts of the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. So make sure you go and check that information out over at DisneyFilmProject.com. Joining me, as always, we have our fine film experts. First of all, there is Mr. Todd Perlmutter, who is known to be a giant horticulturist himself. Yes. I prefer tomatoes, though. Really? I don't, I don't even like little tomatoes. I can't imagine a giant one. Yeah. There be, you go. It'd be neat. It would be. It would be. Lots of ketchup. It, it, amongst other things, yes. Uh, and also joining us... From all sites on the interwebs, Miss Rachel Cold. How are you, Rachel? I'm doing well. Uh, just a reminder that I am doing reviews for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. over on soundonsite.org, so definitely go check those out. All right, we can do that. It was a good episode the other day. I was very excited. Yes, it was. <laughs> and, of course, our producer who keeps things going and who keeps the trains running on time and edits this down and, and makes everything happen for us is Miss Cheryl Perlmutter, who you can find on Twitter, at Cheryl P3. How are you, Cheryl? Doing good. I'm going to give our listeners a little spoiler. Um, make sure you watch like the first part of Cinderella and, and look, at the, look at her mother. She might look familiar to all you Agent Carter fans. I, I actually know what you're talking about. So, All right. Uh, today, tonight, tomorrow, whenever it is that you're listening, we are talking about the 1996 film James and the Giant Peach. I can't believe we actually haven't done this yet. It's, it's a giant foul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know how we, you know, we, as we talk, you know, we like to save stuff. It's true. Because if we do all the good stuff, then we're left with Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and, and Air Bud Marathons. So uh, that's all I have what's, to wrong, say. what's wrong with Air Bud Marathons? <laughs> sure. That's all. That's what I have to say about that. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Who let her on again? <laughs> yeah, no. We, 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 I, <laughs> I'm not going to get into the Air Bud discussion. Uh, suffice to say, James and the Giant Peach is is uh, a famous novel by Roald Dahl, the author of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. This is one of 
the adaptations of his work. Um, that one's been adapted more, but this is one that uh, I know if you read anything about the, do, do any research or read about it, uh, his widow was thrilled uh, with the result here and had turned down many other options to uh, adapt James and the Giant Peach, but she was very happy with how things turned out when Disney decided to do it. And in, it's a mixture of live action and, and stop motion animation. So the same team, basically, who did Nightmare Before Christmas. Henry Selleck, the director, he directed that film. Um, Tim Burton was the producer uh, and, and came aboard to, uh, to to adapt James and the Giant Peach. And it shares, I would say, a little bit of the Burton-esque uh, look and feel, but it's much more, I think, Henry Selleck's film than than, than Burton. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like the, the aesthetic is not the same. He's not directing, so that's yeah. that's the fundamental difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's definitely a lot of what he created in doing, you know, Nightmare Before Christmas and things like that. So, right. um, I just wanted to add that uh, it's important to note that while this is probably, I guess, this is the final. Uh, Disney connection for Rodal. Uh, his first one goes all the way back many, many years to uh, his very first children's novel, The Gremlins. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right? Um, and that was one that he specifically wrote for Walt Disney for a movie that never came to be. But that very same book was, in fact, part of Spielberg's inspiration for the Gremlins movie. So. I, I, I did know that. Um, and it, they did a, a really cool uh, comic book about it, too. Yeah, they they just redid the books, yeah. Yeah. Yep. It's very cool. Question. Am, am I the only one that has read the original book, James and the Giant Peach, or have you guys read? When I was oh, no. a kid, I don't remember yeah. it. Much, yeah, did all. Yeah. yeah, same here. I read it, uh, actually, a few times when I was a kid, but I haven't, not in years. Yeah, I have a confession to make. This was, for quite a while when I was younger, this was my favorite book. That's awesome. a good confession. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yes, I went through quite a Roald Dahl kick. I read basically all of his books in the library, like at our local public library. And I think at this point, there's only a few of his books that I have not read. And that's because I know that, you know, obviously he died a number of years ago. And uh, and once I read these last things that he's written, then there's nothing else left. I'd like to hang on to those for just a little while longer. Have you read like all his nonfiction stuff too and everything? I have read his two autobiographies, uh, Boy and um, I'm trying to remember the one about uh, his time in the war. I think it's Going Solo is the name of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, those are both excellent. Actually, one of my first uh, plays that I ever wrote was an adaptation of um, the story from his his autobiography, Boy, about the uh, the rat in the uh, the candy jar which is really funny if you get a chance to read it. It's very funny. Okay. Also mildly Ooh. gross. Yes. <laughs> as, as it is with most Raw Doll things. Funny, mildly gross. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, a, that's a good description of, of most Raw Doll. You're right. Yeah. Well, he, his books are raw for, and, and well-known for telling it like it is, despite whether it's fantasy or fiction or, or nonfiction. He tends to, you know just run that gambit of rawness to it. And that's like James and the giant peach is always like one of the most contended should this b- books of the band lists from yes. way back when. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It still gets challenges on occasion today because I mean, there's, there's quite a bit in it that's very morbid 
and also magic is always something that gets uh, books on the uh, the challenge lists. So yeah, yeah. why there's still a challenge list? Who knows? Uh, that's a very good question. <laughs> very good question. Uh, so this was this was a big a big hit for Disney or big ish I should say. I mean, basically it was uh, you know it made its budget back if you look at the the way the budget works, but. You know, this is one of those movies that's sort of like Nightmare Before Christmas, um, but but is uh, in that it didn't really find the audience in the theaters. But since then, um, it's found quite a bit of audience. I mean, I know uh, we've all watched it this time for the most part, either on Netflix or on Amazon. And like it runs quite a bit on uh, on cable from time to time and places like that. So I think there's there's a bunch of people out there who have seen it who probably never saw it in, in the theater or didn't even, you know, uh, connect it with that, you know, gosh, it's almost 20 years ago now uh, when it came out. Yeah, it's also one of those movies they tend to like to show during holiday times and stuff like that, too. Yep, that's right. Yep. I do have very strong memories of going to see this in the theater. Because mm-hmm. when I found out, because this was my favorite book at the time, when I found out it was going to be a movie, I, I was just, I was on cloud nine. I was so happy. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine, yeah. It's probably like when Todd and I heard they were going to make a movie of, a, of of the Avengers. Oh yes, yeah, definitely on that same level. So. Yeah. Uh, a great voice cast in this. Uh, like I said, part of it is stop motion. Uh, Richard Dreyfuss, Susan Sarandon, Jane Leaves—probably the most famous. Uh, people that you'll know, but I mean, the, the entire voice cast is really excellent. Um, Paul Terry stars as James. Uh, I don't recall seeing him in anything else. Uh, he had a television show, but I, I was reading that he quit acting after this because he got bitten by the spider during the spider scene. And he became Spider-Man? I'm unclear, but that's, <laughs> that's his stated reason in an interview for stop, for stopping acting. Okay. All right. Uh, another interesting thing here is, if you remember, uh, we said it was 1996. So Toy Story came out in 1994 featuring the music of one Randy Newman. Uh, and this oh, also it's... features the music of Randy Newman. So he was uh, in the Disney hopping uh, mode at this point. So he went back to do Bugs Life and some of the other stuff. But uh, he did the music for this. So there's, this is a, I don't know if he would call it a musical. There are songs in it. But they're not really. I, I I don't know that it would you would call it a musical. There's there's what four there's four basic songs and then one over the end end credits. Yeah. Yeah, and interestingly enough, uh, since this movie came out, there's actually been a stage musical adaptation of James and the Giant Peach um, by songwriting uh, duo uh, Pasek and Paul, who also did the stage adaptation of. Um, a Christmas Story, and they've had a number of other uh, really good um, uh, film to uh, to stage adaptations like Dogfight, um, another mm. really good musical. Um, but if you check it out online, uh, type just type in James and the Giant Peach Musical. Um, a number of the songs are available on YouTube to listen to. Cool. So, uh, yeah, the, like we said, it's based on the, the novel by Roald Dahl. Uh, there's, there's not a lot really uh, that I know about the novel itself other than having read it. I don't know if it was uh, a huge success, but I imagine it was because most things that he wrote were. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I know that the film was, was received with overwhelmingly positive uh, vibes from the critics. They really, really loved this stuff. 
so this was this was one that um, I think the last thing I saw on Rotten Tomatoes it's at like ninety three percent, which is yeah. enormously high. <laughs> yeah, especially for it, Rotten Tomatoes. It, it, I would say that it's a good adaptation of the source material. Um, there are a number of uh, big deviations in the plot, um, which we'll get to once we get to the rundown of it. But um, I would say that it definitely keeps the spirit of it, and the characters are all definitely intact. It's just some of the things along the way are a little bit changed. Gotcha. Well, we'll talk about that as we go through it. So uh, this is set in the 1930s. So 1949, big... actually, the movie. Oh, really? The movie? Is yeah, because the... there's a newspaper the at the, the end 30s. that has 1949 on it. Okay, there we go. There we go. The book's in the 30s, though, right? I think so. I think so. Okay. And so the protagonist of the movie is James Henry Trotter. Uh, and it opens uh, – I had forgotten because uh, it had been so long that I, since I had seen it. It opens with live action. <clears throat> and, in fact, the first, what, 20 minutes or so – our live action is that about right? Yeah, yeah, uh, that, that's about right. Yeah, it, it's about an hour and twenty minute movie. Which, if you recall, uh, Nightmare Before Christmas, or if you've seen uh, Henry Selick's other movie that he did, uh, Corpse Bride, uh, that was also stop motion, about that same length. So, not you know, not a two hour epic, but uh, nice, nice, short and sweet. Uh, and like we said, there's there is a lot of live action at the beginning. Uh, but it opens with this sort of flashback sequence of James with his parents sitting by the uh, by the sea, and he's talking to his parents, and they are telling him how they are going to go and visit New York City and see the Empire State Building, and that is the big dream that they have. All of it, he and his parents together is to go to New York and to see the Empire State Building. Uh, having just been there a couple days ago and seen the Empire State Building. Um, I don't, I don't know that I would hop in a giant peach to do it, but it is impressive. Well, they were going to hop in a giant peach. He hopped in a giant peach. I'm just saying, <laughs> you know. I mean, it's very nice. Don't get me wrong. I really like the Empire State Building. I just, yes. I don't know if I would brave the Arctic and things like happens in the movie, but that's a whole other question. And then the narrator tells us that his parents are killed by a ghostly rhinoceros. <laughs> They're eaten by a ghostly rhinoceros. Yeah. Yes. In 35 seconds flat. Yep. Yes. Now, in the book, it's an actual rhinoceros, if I remember, right? Yes, that is correct. Okay. Yes. And, but in the movie, they more imply like the ants ran them over, him, them over with their car. That's how I always felt. Yeah, that, the, that they had some sort of hand in it, yeah. even if it wasn't them. Yeah. 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 Um, it's also the same with uh, the mechanical shark later on. It's not a mechanical shark in the book. I don't really know what the reasoning was behind making it mechanical, but. Jaws no. joke. Oh, Jaws joke? <laughs> <laughs> right, Bruce, well, is a, Bruce is a mechanical shark. Yes. Um, yeah, I was uh, definitely the Jaws reference there with uh, Dreyfus being in the cast, but. Um, <laughs> But no, it is not a mechanical shark in the book. It's just regular old sharks. So, got it. Much fun. And so, James, as ha so often happens in any book with an English child, uh, becomes an orphan and goes to live with his two aunts, Spiker and Sponge, 
which is great names for villainous ants. And they end up, they're living near the White Cliffs of Dover, which I always remember from <laughs> Led Zeppelin songs. Yeah. And so it's it's very much like, like to me, it reminds me, and I know this came first, but it reminds me of Harry Potter. Right, it's the it's the the kid who believes in something or who's who has something more to offer the world who uh, is is you know treated horribly and uh, forced he he's forced to live in the attic he you know he gets beaten he has to do all the chores all this kind of stuff uh, and Spiker and Sponge are that's probably the most Burton esque element of the whole movie to me is those two. Oh yes. Yeah, definitely the two of them in their costumes and just the general look of them. It's it's very exaggerated. I would have to say the also the glowworm is very mayor esque. Yeah, I can since see that. T- since we're talking about that, you know, Tim Burton influences. Yeah, the 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 glowworm seemed like like the mayor to me. Uh, yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah. Well, what you were saying, Ryan, about that it's always these kids that are being mistreated by the adults, that's a running theme in Roald Dahl books in general. Um, like, especially, like, the the ones that come to mind are ones like uh, George's Marvelous Medicine and Matilda and, of course, James and the Giant Peach. Um, it's It's the whole thing of always it's the kids versus the adults, and the adults are evil and the kids are kind of at the mercy of them. Right, because even like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, his grandfather is not nearly as nice as he is in the movie. No. <laughs> nobody's as nice as they are in the movie. The Gene Wilder version, I should say. The Johnny Depp version. Yeah. You know, everybody's mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so James is, is mistreated, you know, like, like all great uh, English youngsters. And he ends up actually stumbling across this guy who's played by, uh, I don't know if I'll get the actor's name right, Pete Postlewaite. You, he's one of those character actors that you would know him if you saw him. You guys agree with that? Yeah, he's oh, got one of those yeah. stares that the directors love to use. Yeah. And so one, one time when he is, is out after some of this, he, the old man uh, gives him this magic potion, which I, I I just I'm watching this the other day and I'm going I know Todd wrote down what's in this magic potion. Oh, I have it somewhere. <laughs> Hang on, I do I do actually have it. It's it's one thousand long slimy crocodile tongues boiled in the skull of a dead witch for forty days and forty nights, and the gizzard of a pig, the fingers of a young monkey, the beak of a parrot, and three spoonfuls of sugar, and then let the moon do the rest. I don't know what that last part means. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, but it's a, what's what's important to note is James kind of has this singing moment in the beginning, and he meet, talks he sings to the spider for like five minutes, roughly. Yeah, I think during the minute beginning, and then he makes this paper balloon that he sends out, and that's what the old man returns the potion in. Is yes. the paper balloon that he sent up in the air? So yeah, good point. Yep. Yep. And so he brings him this potion. Uh, James, unfortunately, uh, the, the idea is that James, if he drinks the potion, this will bring him happiness and great adventures. And the guy says, you know, basically, you know, the most amazing things will happen to you. And so James is taking it into uh, the house, uh, but he spills it, part of it at least, onto uh, the peach tree, which is completely barren, hasn't borne fruit in forever. At least we're, that's what we're told. 
And when uh, he comes out the next day, uh, the pe- there's a peach on the peach tree. And the peach on the peach tree suddenly grows as large as a house. Like, literally, by the time he climbs up to try and pick the peach for uh, Spiker and Sponge, the peach grows to the size of a house before he can actually get up there. Yes. Yep. And so their their decision is that they now have this wonderful gift, this wonderful peach, uh, and they are going to create a tourist attraction out of it, which I think would happen if this happened in, like, the Midwest is the, is the feeling I get. Having driven through the Midwest <laughs> before, like, I could totally see world's largest peach. Or it in Georgia, I would it say. It can't be a very long attraction, though. I mean, like, the peach is going to go bad eventually. Yeah. This is a true statement. Well, they're going to make as much money as they can in the meantime. Indeed. And they actually yeah. made a lot of money because they only show them showing it one day, and it's a lot of money on that table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I didn't understand be... that, how they made mm-hmm. all that money. How'd they advertise? Well, there's probably not a whole lot to do down in the town. I mean, you get everyone to show up for one day, probably make a good amount of money. Also, I like that they charge the father twice. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> yes. And so, yeah, the, it, the whole thing is, you know, it's a big deal that, that there's this peach, and but the, all the people leave stuff all over the place and they kind of trash the yard and everything. And so the, the Spiker and Sponge send James out to, to pick up after everybody. But when he does that, um, he goes and he actually, like, grabs part of the peach to eat it because he's not being fed properly. And when he does, all of a sudden there's a hole in the side of the peach, which is a problem. Well, he eats the, a cro- one of the crocodile tongues jumps into the piece that he eats, and then uh, everything happens. Yeah. And so, yeah. Which we should, point, we, we should point out that a lot of the stuff that Rodal writes involves some form of drugs at some point. This is a <laughs> very valid statement. Yes, once again, see uh, George's Marvelous Medicine. That that book is all kinds of strange and involves lots and lots of drugs, mostly made at home. <laughs> so it's like the Breaking Bad of its time. <laughs> you might say so, yes. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, but you're, you're correct. He does take the, uh, the, the tongues and, and it eats the peach. And when he crawls into the peach... Uh, this is when we start shifting over to the stop motion. So when he crawls into the peach, James, the char- the actor, uh, turns into James, the stop motion character, and he sees that there is a secret room inside the middle of the peach pit. And, and just to be clear, this is the actual pit of a peach. It is not the peach pit from Beverly Hills 90210. It's not the same thing. <laughs> that would have been a very different movie if he had gone inside and Jason Priestley had been there. <laughs> singing yes singing singing songs and, and stuff yeah that would have been uh, actually now I kind of want to see that movie <laughs> is he Pete School Musical uh, yeah <laughs> I like it uh, no instead of instead of characters from Beverly Hills 90210 uh, he finds human sized bugs Basically, uh, there is a grasshopper, a centipede, an earthworm, a spider, a ladybug, and a glowworm, uh, all of whom get their various epithets as Mr. or Mrs. And these are, these are the people that scare the poop out of him, shall we say. 
when he first goes in. <laughs> yes. Uh, quick question. How did you guys feel about um, Paul Terry, who plays uh, James? How did you guys feel about his acting? Because I actually kind of preferred him when he became stop motion because it meant that the animators got to make his acting decisions. He's very slow moving. So I, I tend to agree. It kind of picks up a little bit when it hits the animation. Yeah. It's the, the beginning really drags for me, like you said. So that, that part, I, I, I will admit I'm not a huge fan of, of the whole film, but but the beginning part, before we get into stop motion, I just, I, I'm kind of like, okay, let's go, let's go, let's go, because we know where it's headed. Yeah, I think right? part of the problem, and I've, I've no aspect on this kid. I, I really was like, didn't think either one. But I think part of the problem is the character Spike and Spiker, wherever they are. Spiker and Sponge. Spiker and Sponge overshadow him so much that there's nothing he can do. They, they kind of do. I, I tend to agree with that. They are much yeah. more active and strong characters than his character is in the beginning. But, the, but that's part of the point of the story, right, is he is weak and meek, and by the end, that all ceases to be. That's, it, it's really his growing up is a big part of the yeah. movie. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe that was intentional is, what, is the only thing I can think of. Yeah. It might be. I, I don't know. I wasn't... Wasn't privy to that part of the, the creation, so I can't say. Well, they're so over the top, like you guys are saying, right? And that's what I was—that's what I meant when I said like they're the most Burton-esque part of the film, is because they're so like wild and out there, and he's so not that. Yeah. It's it's a it's a weird contrast. Like I get why it's that way, but it is a little bit of a strange contrast. Yeah, and I was thinking about a lot about Wes Anderson while I was watching this movie because Wes Anderson also did one of my other favorite adaptations of a doll book, which was Fantastic Mr. Fox. And having just seen Moonrise Kingdom recently and seeing the child actors in that, and especially the main character who is kind of a bit of a you know quiet kid um, and is a really good actor and plays that so well, I just... I don't know. Like, I get what they're trying to do, but I don't know if they necessarily succeed. I just kind of end up not really having very strong feelings about James at the beginning, just mm-hmm. from the way that the actor plays him. Again, who knows if that was the way he was directed? We don't know. Yeah, that's that's very true. Yeah, very valid point. And so basically what it is is that this uh, Mr. Grasshopper, Mr. Centipede... Miss Spider, uh, Miss Ladybug, they were all transformed by the same magical potion that transformed the Peach, that transformed James. And, and so they have now built this home inside the Peach, and they're trying to figure out uh, how they're, what they're going to do. Um, Spiker and Sponge come out to find him. And of course they break into song, don't forget. I, good point. Good point. There is a, a song of That's the Life for Me where they're talking about adventures and things like that that they're going to to have. Uh, And when Spiker and Sponge come out, they decide to go ahead and start them, or at least Mr. Centipede does, which is uh, Richard Dreyfuss' character. Uh, He goes and cuts the stem from the giant peach and rolls the peach into the ocean. Not planned out very well, I would say. (laughs) 
Also, it crushes the ant's car. Yes, yes which which in the book it just crushes the ants completely. Yeah, I I don't know why it, they bothered to change that for this movie. No. Yeah. I actually think it hurts the ending personally. And and, and it's also important to note that based on the time period when James and Giant Peach was written, it references a lot of uh, other books of dolls that happened both before and after. Yeah. Because so, it actually rolls through the town, and the town is the same town where the chocolate factory is from Charlie and the Chocolate yep. Factory. And so it rolls yep. through a famous chocolate factory in the book, if I remember. Yep. Mm. Rolls down the street peach. right past the... Oh. <laughs> wow. Oh, that'd be good. I'm out of here. Well, you're close enough to Epcot. You could probably actually go get that. Yeah, they'd probably make it for me, sure. Yeah. What if I brought my own peach? Yeah, good point. And so, yeah, this is the thing. The, the, they are now in the ocean uh, and don't know what to do. They, and they have not yet figured out what to do. Uh, the centipede, James, of course, remembers that he wants to go to New York City. And the centipede has this idea that, they, that he can steer the ship um, by steering the stem of the peach. Which, that was, that's always been the part that's bothered me about this movie, if I may digress for a second is if he turns that peach stem as much as he turns it in this movie, it's just going to come off. It's not going to steer anything. <laughs> yep. I think then later we learned that he wasn't much of a captain. It's a good point. It's a good point. He this, wasn't... This is also a world in which I think it's 501 seagulls, according to the book, can carry this giant peach. And here it's only 100, by the way. Yep. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, that, that's the thing is like they, they, the decision they make is like, well, they have no way of propelling themselves. There's nothing to do. So James comes up with this idea that they should just rope some seagulls because the seagulls are like circling around them ready to eat the bugs, the giant bugs. And so James comes up with this idea to rope some seagulls uh, and they use the earthworm as bait. Uh, they use string from Mrs. Spider from her web, uh, which, by the way, is not holding up under the weight of the peach. Magic or no magic. <laughs> the tensile strength on that is good. It's not that good. Why don't she's human size though, right? So anything is possible at that point. Look at uh, Spider Man, swings all web any size. Yes, but he made that because he's Peter Parker, science genius. But she made the web too. <laughs> see. All right. We'll see. But yes, uh, they rope the seagulls and use the 100 seagulls, as you said in the movie, uh, to fly the, the peach where they want to go. So the whole seagull thing, though, comes about uh, a little more urgently because there is a giant mechanical shark that is trying to attack them that apparently has, like, what, six rows of teeth spinning inside? It's, like, it's not like teeth, like, chomp, chomp, but they're circular it's more like a garbage disposal. Yeah, right. Yep. And so the shark is trying to eat them, and they are trying to get away from the shark, and this is what they're doing with the seagulls. Uh, Mr. Centipede almost gets eaten by the shark. Uh, he gets saved, uh, and they they manage to, to fly into the air at the, at the last second. I also like that the mechanical shark fires mechanical dogfish at them. I did not understand that. <laughs> Me either, but hey... I felt it worked. 
And so once they are safely away in the air, uh, Miss Spider actually comes over and makes a little bed for James, like a web. And then she starts tucking him in, quote unquote, which involves like spinning him a blanket web. Did anybody else get a little creeped out? Like I thought she might eat him. I was concerned she was getting because he had been so kind to her. So I'm just saying when a spider starts spinning a web and trapping you in it, you should be concerned. <laughs> but he's it was not a, a trick thief. all along. Yeah, um, but we we didn't mention that he actually had saved a spider from uh, from Spiker and Sponge earlier in the movie, and it was Miss Spider. So that was uh, she. She admits this to him uh, and tucks him in and wishes him a good night. And unfortunately for him, he has a horrible nightmare about a ghostly rhinoceros and himself as a caterpillar. Which reminds me of, if you guys have ever watched Monty Python. Yes. It reminds me oh. of the Terry Gilliam illustrations on that. It, it was just like that, actually, not that you say it. So we have, like, the live-action stuff with a little Tim Burton flair. You've got the, like, really bright-colored stop-motion stuff. And then you've got this, like, weird, like, British paper animation thing. There's a lot of artistic styles in this movie. Well, this movie kind of embodies Monty Python's and now for something completely different with its its style choices. (laughs) By the way, you, you skipped over the, uh, the fantastic peach song. Would would we say fantastic? Uh, There was a lot of peach eating going on. Yeah. I have very strong, like, Looking back at the first time that I saw this movie, this was probably the song that I remember the most from it. Really? Yeah. I remember the. I remembered from the first time I saw it the "That's the Life for Me" just song, uh, but I didn't. I didn't actually remember this mainly because I did not remember people getting uh, steins of peach beer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree. By the way, peach beer sounds awesome. It, it does. <laughs> I, I will agree with that. It sounds like a like a, a Georgia version of butterbeer. Mm, yeah, but... did you see the foam on on the top of that beer? That was like, that was really impressive. Tasty. Yep, it was very impressive. Lady Bunny yeah. knows how to sling them. Apparently, yeah. I I still think there's a problem there though because they are eating their mode of transit. It well, was like magical, said... so it was regrow- would regrow. I think still. It also seems bigger on the inside. So you're saying the peach is a TARDIS? Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's British, you know. If we're if we're going to pull in Monty Python, might as well bring in Doctor Who as well. True. I have to say, this is a very the, the movie has a very British sensibility to it. You know what I mean? Like the stuff like we were talking <laughs> about with the robot shark. Like it's not. There's no reason why anyone. No one stops to explain why there's a robot shark. No one stops to explain how a rhinoceros killed James's parents. You know what I mean? Like in a, in an American movie, a lot of this stuff would be, you know, narrated, ex- explained in great detail and all this kind of stuff. Uh, yeah. but, but in this one, it's just like, accept it and move on. Well, yeah. they, they, they start off by expecting you to understand that he's in a giant peach. So, you know, I think it's pretty fair game at that point. <laughs> True. <laughs> Yeah, so after this big nightmare sequence, uh, James wakes up and he's cold and goes up to the top of the peach. And it turns out that uh, the centipede has not been the best navigator 
uh, or captain or whatever you want to call him. Uh, but it turns out that he has gotten them into the Arctic. So I don't know if you know your geography, um, because I know American schools are not the best in geography, but the shortest distance between England and New York City is not uh, through the Arctic. <laughs> are you sure? Uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Don't you go south yeah. to get there? Um, I think so. But you don't <laughs> go to the North Pole. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's all revealed because uh, Centipede has never actually traveled the world like he said he has. Um, he's actually just read a whole lot of National Geographic. I, I gather the red was mostly, like, eating the pages. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Probably. <laughs> So now they have to figure out how to to make this work. Uh, so uh, in the Arctic, they, they start trying to figure out what to do. Uh, the grasshopper actually wishes for a compass. Uh, and the centipede decides that he's going to fix this. He's going to find a sunken ship because there's they're in the Arctic and there's this big graveyard of, of ships. Uh, and so he goes and dives into the ocean to try and find it. And unfortunately for him, uh, he does find a compass, uh, but he gets uh, taken prisoner by skeleton pirates, you know, as happens. <laughs> Underwater. Yeah. Right. And so he gets taken by the skeletal pirates. Uh, James and Mrs. Spider have to actually come and rescue him, and there's this big fight scene between um, these skeleton pirates who, again, like, again, the British sensibility – they no explanations or, or, or anything of that nature. Uh, so, you know, it, that, that's what, it is what it is, right? Uh, yeah. Skeletons are showing up and they are attacking and James and Mrs. Spider have to go down. It's kind of cool. Mrs. Spider like swings down and attacks. Not just yes. skeletons. What, what's there, Rachel? <laughs> a Jack Skellington. A Jack Skellington. Yeah. 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 They, if I think the... oh my, a Skellington. <laughs> yeah, he says, oh my, a Skellington. Jackpot. Emphasis on the jack. There's also a skeleton version of Donald Duck as one of the pirates, too. Yep. Yeah, this whole sequence is actually the biggest deviation, um, like the biggest deviation from the original book, uh, because the original book, uh, their travels actually take them up into the clouds, and they encounter the cloud men which are the men that uh, cause the rain and the snow and, um, and they decide to pelt the peach with, uh, with hail. And that's what the big battle is. It isn't so much with pirates. I can see how someone would look at the movie version of this and say, well, we can either do undead pirates or we can do cloud men. Okay, and- then. And undead pirates sound a lot more fun than cloud men. <laughs> undead pirates are always good. I mean, yes. Disney has a lot of success with this, no matter what, right? Yes. Undead pirates. Not that time, but now they do. Well, but I mean, like this is this wasn't a huge success, but it still worked, right? True. You know, undead pirates. I mean, I think they should put them in a lot of stuff. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> 
and so they they continue on their way with their compass and with Mr. Centipede in one piece. Uh, when they are getting close to New York City, the clouds break and they see New York City below them stretching out, which if you've ever flown over New York City is really cool to watch. Uh, and unfortunately, the rhinoceros shows up, which it turns out is in fact a thunderstorm that looks like a rhinoceros. Yes. Actually, before this, we have the big family number, which is possibly one of the trippiest things that happens in the entire movie. Yes. Uh, yes. That's. I'm sorry. I was. I was trying to remember what you were talking about, and I'm like, oh yes, yes. Yes. It's. It's the. It's where they all decide that they are each other's family now, right? And they because they were everybody was upset with Mr. Centipede, and when they rescued him, now they're like, no, you're one of us. You're. You're part of the family, and so, you know, it's all good. You're. You're all with us. All this kind of stuff, uh, and so they are able to. Uh, sing this great song about uh, being part of a family and they decide that they're always all going to live together, which I just wonder, is the magic ever going to wear off? That's all. That's all I want to know. I would be a little concerned. <laughs> I don't think they realize, like, I don't even know if James really realizes what, ha- how this all happened. He doesn't strike me as very smart and the bugs certainly don't understand the magic stuff because they weren't, no. they, they just got hit by it. Yeah, it's true. I don't think they actually know what's going on. James does, but he never says anything. Well, like I said, he's, I'm not sure that he really does, because he's not very bright. Uh, this is this is true. Yeah, he's a sweet kid. Not the brightest. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, the shot and- of, um, of the, uh, the mobile with... Um, the peach hanging in the center of it and all the planets and everything just kind of floating around is it's it's kind of a really cool shot it makes no sense but (laughs) and again it's very monty python oh yes yeah this does have a the more we talk about it the more i think it does have quite a bit of monty python vibe to it but a lot of henry selick stuff does even even Nightmare Before Christmas has that same sort of non sequiturish uh, type uh, dialogue and stuff. Yeah, this scene is also why um, Grasshopper is my favorite of all of the uh, the various different insects. I think I think he is um, the best one because well, for one, he plays a musical instrument, so you know. <laughs> he, can, he can provide them with entertainment. <laughs> I, I like how he puts himself above other grasshoppers. Yes. <laughs> of course. I mean, he is a very large grasshopper. Yes. So, uh, but yeah, so they, they manage to, the, the ghostly rhinoceros attacks, uh, which again, turns out to be a thunderstorm. James actually is standing on the side of the peach, which we, we didn't talk about this, but there's like a staircase around the peach. Um, that that James is standing on, yelling at the rhinoceros that he's well, not. Was the fence to... at the beginning of, at the house at the beginning of the movie? That's right. Yep. And he sends the rest of the crew up the strings, up Miss Spider strings that are attached to the seagulls. And what ends up happening is the, the peach breaks off, and James falls inside the peach during the thunderstorm. He defies the rhinoceros. Good. He plummets through the air in a peach. Bad. <laughs> That would be the yeah. best way to, to summarize that. 
And so when he wakes up, he can't figure out where he is. And he gets out on top of the peach and he's looking out over New York City. Uh, and it turns out that he's actually been impaled on the Empire State Building. Not him, the peach. I should be I should clarify. Although I was worried when I saw it, I was like, uh oh, James might get impaled on the Empire State Building. But it, it didn't happen. It's- it's also important to note that he, cl- when he climbs back out of the peach, he's back to normal. He's no longer animated James. Yeah, because he coughs up the um, the tongue in the midst of all that. The uh, the was a crocodile tongue or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. He just like in the midst of the fall and everything, he coughs and it just kind of jumps right out of his mouth. So. Yep. And so, but he's alone, like the rest of the, the re- and we go back to, uh, to live action because when he's standing on top of the peach, um, we, we then pan down below and there, we see New York city cops and we see, you know, basic folks from the city, um, looking at this giant peach up there. He is rescued and brought down along with the peach. Rescued down. by the biggest crane in New York. Yeah. I don't think that <laughs> crane actually exists. <laughs> It'd be cool if it did, though. It it would. It would mean that the, all that stuff they do, uh, all, you know, like when they put stuff up on the castle, they would just get this crane and they could do it from outside the park. They could probably do it from New York. <laughs> they probably could. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> uh, but they, they managed to get the peach down and then Spiker and Sponge show up to try to claim both James and the peach, which, like you were saying, Rachel, this is very different from the book. Um uh, when they show up, the crowd is like, James is telling his story about all the things that have happened. And this is the part that I like because it's James is telling this story that is so incredible and crazy. And like all the British people were taking it fine. They were just like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, the, the British bugs and everything are just like, yeah, it's great. Um, and James starts telling the New Yorkers and they are very, very skeptical. I'm like, that kind of shows you the difference between the, the White Cliffs of Dover people and, and the people in the city. <laughs> and us crazy Americans, right? <laughs> well, it's, it's it's New York, you know. They're used to having giant peaches fall out of the sky. Pretty much everything happens there. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so they, yeah, they manage to do that. And uh, Spiker and Sponge show up and start saying how crazy he is and all this kind of stuff that the boy lies. Uh, but parachuting out of the air come the bugs. The bugs actually attack Spiker and Sponge and uh, wrap them up. James is a local hero, and he turns over the peach to the children of the city who start devouring it. So now we have all sorts of mutant peach children running rampant through the city. This is how The Walking Dead started. <laughs> well, they don't really tell you what happens right after, other than that James lives on in Central Park telling his story. Right. And so that's what I'm yep. saying is this is the part that they don't show you is that there's zombies running wild through Manhattan. Yes. Also, the peach pit becomes their home. I'm thinking that got a little stinky and rotty after a while. I don't buy that part. Yeah, I yeah. would agree with you. I would agree with that 100%. Uh, but yes, and so they, they have this big house in Central Park in the peach pit. Uh, and everybody else that we see like in the – the papers that flash up, you know, you know, that gag where they flash out the paper and like, you know, this guy does this. Um, it's like what grasshoppers going to play in the symphony and uh, they all they all have these careers around the city. Yep. 
Centipede runs for mayor because of course, of course he does. Yep. Yes. Randy Newman sings over the credits. Yes. Yep. And then post credits, there's a little arcade game called Spike the Ants with the Rhino. Best game ever. <laughs> <laughs> I just like the game over buzzer. I think that's a very good way to end the movie as with the game over buzzer. Yes. And that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's the movie. Yeah. And, and we didn't talk much about like the, the acting and things like that because it it is stop motion. Um, so we did talk about the, you know, the main characters acting, but like for me, I think the highlight of the film from an acting standpoint is the voice cast acting like Richard Dreyfuss as Mr. Centipede and Jane Leaves as Ladybug or um, Susan Sarandon, I think, is is OK as Miss Spider. But it's just that they actually bring a lot to the movie. And you notice with the way that we sort of I at least I did when trying to talk about it, we sort of breezed over um, the songs like I the songs are OK. I don't know, like, like for me, I compare it to Nightmare Before Christmas, which I adore every song in, versus these are just sort of, that. that's much more of a musical than this, if that makes sense. These are just sort of in the movie. Yeah, I'm, I'll be honest, I'm not a huge fan of the songs. Um, I don't know, like, in especially having seen other doll adaptations that I feel like do so much better with the music and also with just like the sort of wordplay that doll would use in his writing. I feel like there isn't so much this here, like especially the James song, like the first one introducing him. My name is James. I just feel like that song goes on for so long. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Like I said, it's like, it's like, five to seven minutes long that song and then he's just singing and coloring the whole time yeah yeah and it's like i get that they're kind of getting the melancholy of his existence at that moment but uh, i don't know i like i'm not even really that big a fan of randy newman when he does musicals like i i like his individual songs i think he's a really good musical storyteller but i tend to not really like musicals that he does all the music for them so um yeah, just songs are a bit weak for me. Fair. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, for me, you know, as somebody who's a, a very plot-driven person, uh, for me, like, there's not a lot that actually happens, per se. Like, there's no there's no character arcs other than James, I would say, right? Like, James, James starts standing up for himself and those sorts of things. But for me, it's like, I don't really understand the motivations of... of the people in this movie, like, like I said, it has a very British sensibility of things are happening. Get on board. Let's go. Right. No no need to explain why these things are happening. No need to worry about, you know, what magic stuff is happening or yes, there's a rhinoceros in the sky. Deal with it. Let's go. You know, that kind of stuff, Um, which sometimes can work really, really well. Um, For me, like it's, it's hit or miss depending on, on the part of the movie, like the magic at the very beginning. I'm like, yeah, that, okay, let's go with it. Or, um, the skeleton pirates, of course, are are great, but some pieces like the the rhinoceros didn't hit for me, or the um, the robotic shark. I was just like, what am I watching right now? I don't understand. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, the this, this story itself is very similar to how, like Terabithia with the boy and the way the boy grows up across the course of the movie. But it's the things that go on during it 
right. you know, are, you know, they, they, they don't, they're, they are something going on, but they're just not necessarily helping the story at all. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. And the, uh, in the book, the rhino does not keep coming back the way that he does. He, he, you know, takes out the parents at the beginning and he's mentioned, I believe, once by James to uh, to the grasshopper, who just says, that doesn't make any sense. Why would there be rhinoceroses out here? And then it's done. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So uh, anything else you guys want to add before we, we rate this? No. I just wanted to point out the uh, the Harry Potter connection with uh, David. I don't, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but Thulis, who played a uh, Professor Lupin in the movies, uh, does the voice of Earthworm, which That's was right, driving me crazy. Yes, while I was watching it, it was driving me crazy who he was. And when I looked it up, I was very happy to discover that. And if you watch the behind the scenes, he has quite the fuzzy purple sweater that he's wearing in the uh, recording booth. Yeah. So you, did you promise like a link to that? <laughs> I'll see if I can. I'll, I'll grab a screenshot. <laughs> yeah. That'll be cool. All right. So uh, we can go ahead and rate it then. So how about this? How about uh, I'll go first and then I'll let you guys go ahead. But uh, for me, I I like this movie, but I don't I don't necessarily love it. Um, but I think it is, it's, it's good, not great. Um, but so I would actually give it around a two and a half. Um, like I said, there's certain pieces of this that just sort of miss for me. Um, but I do think it's, it's pretty good. Um, and the parts that I do enjoy, I enjoy quite a bit. Um, but it's sort of a, a roller coaster of like, there's things that I really like and then things that I really dislike. Um, so I would go with a two and a half. Uh, Cheryl, what about you? I'm also going to go with a two and a half. I I feel that's fair for this movie. I mean, I liked it a lot. I hadn't I I don't remember if I've seen it before or not. But um, but it's like like you like everyone like you've been saying it's like Nightmare Before Christmas, but it's not. But but it's not. I don't think it's as. I mean, it's you know. I think it's better than Bridge to Tabitha, obviously. Um, <laughs> but yeah. I I I. I do like understand that James gets overshadowed by both the aunts and then then after he gets out overshadowed by the other characters. So, um, because they all have you know, because it's it's it, I know it's his story, but he seems to be overshadowed the whole time. Yeah, yeah, I hear you, uh, Todd. What about you? Um, I probably liked a little bit more than you guys. Yeah, I guess I'm gonna go to three. Uh, the reason being that I've seen this movie a bunch of times. I saw it in the theater also originally. And my feeling is that it's not a deep movie at all. It's not unenjoyable. The things that you see are kind of fun. Other than that first bit in the movie. <laughs> right. Once, it's, once it gets animated and starts rolling, I actually consider that part of the movie actually a lot of fun. But that's what I like. I like the song where they're eating the peach while living inside the peach. I, I like that bar room. But, you know, it's like in, um, what is it with, um, is it Happiest Millionaire? Not Happiest Millionaire. With the Irish guy. That's Happiest Millionaire. That is Irish. Yeah, with yeah. The, with the butler where he's singing in the, 
But with no, is that the right movie yep. where they're singing in the bar? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's Happy what it reminds me of. That that uh, scene. Sure. Yeah. And I, so I and I enjoyed that, whereas I know you didn't as much. So, but my my point being, the people who who go watch this is that they don't have to put a lot of mind into watching this movie, and you don't even necessarily have to pay a hundred percent attention to it to get the point. Right. Yeah, you're right. All right, Rachel, what about you? I am actually right there with Todd. I'm going to give this three stars. Um, I have a lot of fondness for this movie just because I remember being as excited as I was uh, going to see it. And I remember loving the book. And um, I still think that a lot, the voice acting all holds up. I think the actresses that play the ants are just so perfect. Like, I mean, as far as their acting and just their look and everything, they're really perfect for those parts. Um, I think my score is brought down, honestly, by the the music, which I don't think is quite as good as it could be, and also by the performance of the kid that plays James. Sorry, Paul Terry, wherever you are, but I wasn't really a fan of it. Um, <laughs> but He's I, off I, swinging I, from rooftops. <laughs> yeah, um, I just, yeah, I think Three Stars is entirely fair for this movie. I, I think it's the fun movie movie i'm really glad that i got a chance to revisit it um but it's i would say that there are better uh raw doll adaptations out there all right so we're, i mean we're all in a similar range right like we're all in around the the, the two and a half to three range so uh, i think we're all you know fairly fairly straightforward um yeah uh that would put us all Similar, uh, but I think in the end, James and the Giant Peach is uh, like we like we basically have said, good, not great, but but a good movie. Uh, so let us know what you guys think. I know there's a lot of people out there who really love this. Um, it is if you agree with us or disagree with us, it is your right. So let us know um, if you could please give us an email, disneyfilmproject at gmail dot com. You can send us a note on Twitter at disfilmproject. You can go to Disney Film Project on Facebook. Or, of course, you can always leave a note in the show notes. Um, you can, of course, always find us on Stitcher or Diz Dads Radio if you're listening to the show. And then on iTunes, you can leave us a rating or review. And you can do that. And that helps people find the show. That We would really appreciate that. All right. So that will do it for this week's episode. For Todd and Rachel and Cheryl, I'm Ryan. And we will see you again soon. Admission denied. This child has too many cheeky ideas. I've sailed all the five seas, from the land of Bora Bora to the icy shores of Tripoli. Commander Centipede, they used to call me. We'll wind up in Jersey. I look and smell, I do declare, as lovely as a rose. Just feast your eyes upon my face, observe my shapely nose. Behold my heavenly silky locks, and if I take off both my socks, you'll see my dainty toes. <laughs> <laughs>